As we read the concluding words of James's letter, we hear about sickness and healing, confession of sins, the prayers of the righteous, and bringing people back to the way. But how should we understand all of this? Is anointing related to the modern-day service of unction? If so, how? And are we to really expect a sick person to become well through prayer? Also, is James's confession of sins to one another the same as modern-day confession? If so, how? Finally, is there a connection between unction and confession? If so, what is it? The bottom line, James's Christian vision is one where there's power in community, so much so that it leads to our salvation. You're listening to The Way with Father Dustin Lyon, a podcast of the Ephesus School Network. Welcome back to The Way. I'm your host, Father Dustin. Now, I hope in this week before Holy Week, we can finish our study of James. So, without further ado, here is chapter 5, starting with verse 13. Are any among you suffering? They should pray. Are any cheerful? They should sing songs of praise. Are any among you sick? They should call for the elders of the church and have them pray over them anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise them up, and anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another, so that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being like us, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth yielded its harvest. My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and is brought back by another, you should know that whoever brings back a sinner from wandering will save the sinner's soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So that is the end of the Epistle of St. James, or Yaakovos, as we talked about before. So let's dig into understanding what this means. And as you can see, or as you'll learn, a lot of the Church's theology about anointing of the sick comes from this passage, and we'll talk about that here in a minute and what that is, specifically in the Orthodox Christian perspective. But the very first line is, if any among you are suffering. And literally, the word that James uses here is to suffer bad. Or maybe a better way of translating it is to suffer evil. And it's hard to tell what exactly he means here. It isn't just suffering as a whole, but perhaps we can think about it as suffering from the evil one or suffering from bad things. Whatever it is, it's more than just plain suffering, but it's suffering specifically the bad. And the solution to this, according to James, is to pray. And perhaps James is using prayer in this instance to go against the murmuring he talks about above in verse 9. Instead of gossiping and murmuring, 
about someone who has suffered some sort of disaster, we should pray for them. Or instead of complaining about our disaster, we should see it as a picking up of our own cross to follow Christ. And in that way, we should pray rather than complaining. But then James continues on. If anyone is happy, let him sing psalms of praise. The word used in Greek is the word for psalms. So it's not just any songs, but we get the impression that you should sing the psalms. So the backbone of the services in the Orthodox Church is the Psalter, the book of Psalms. And if you take out all the extra hymns that were added in the 4th, 6th, 7th, and 8th centuries, you're left with basically a cycle of services based on the Psalms. As we know, Matins, for example, starts with six psalms, and then it goes into Psalm 50, and then the praises are again based on the psalms. Same thing with Vespers. It starts with a psalm, and then at Lord I Cried, there are a bunch of psalm verses. Now, sometimes the psalm verses are omitted in favor of the later Christian hymns, but the backbone of these services is psalms. And even the beginning of the Divine Liturgy, the antiphons, are based on psalms with Christian refrains in between the verses. You know, save us, O Son of God, and through the prayers of the Theotokos. Those are the refrains that go between the psalm verses. In the Russian tradition, they've taken out the refrains, and they simply sing the psalms. In the Greek tradition, what they've done is oftentimes taken out the psalms and just sing the refrains. But you should know that the first part is based on those psalms. And in fact, even at the end of liturgy, there is a psalm that is supposed to be read there in thanksgiving for the Eucharist. Now, this is preserved in the pre-sanctified liturgy, but it is often omitted today in the regular Sunday liturgy. So, if you are cheerful, you should sing songs, or you should sing the psalms. So, if you are cheerful... Sing the psalms. The words are there for you. Then he continues, Are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church and have them pray over you. So the word for elder here is the same word that's used for priest in the modern context. And here is where Greek has an advantage over English. In Greek, I am a presbyter. And the word presbyter literally means elder. That's what it means. Now, the actual word for priest, as in the Old Testament priest, or someone who makes a sacrifice in Greek, is ierevs. And this word is what literally means priest. But it's the word that's used to describe not the clergy, but every baptized believer. And this is used by Paul to talk about a royal priesthood, meaning the entire Christian congregation. So, in English, we get this confused because we like to talk about the ordained clergy as the priests versus the laity. The word laity means the people. But in reality, what you have is the entire assembly, the entire church. All the people are the priests. And then within the priests, there are ordained clergy who are the elders of the priesthood. This is the scriptural image of what's happening. Now, of course, the way clergy develops throughout the centuries and the way the institution develops um, is another story. And that's how we get priests today as a profession. Here, it's talking about the elders of the church, the presbyters, coming to anoint 
people with oil who are sick. And oil, of course, was like plastic in the ancient world. You used it for everything. You used it for cooking. You used it as energy. This is, you'd put a wick in the oil, and then you could light it, and that was how you lit your house at night. They didn't use wax candles because the poor would have to use basically animal fat to make their wax and it smelled awful. And so they would use the oil instead. So I was watching the TV show, The Chosen, and they have wax candles all over the place to light people's houses. And this is probably inaccurate. Despite them saying they had historians fact-checking everything, they probably didn't use wax candles in the first century. It would have been oil lamps. And of course, oil was also used as medicine. It is the aspirin of the ancient world. And you could rub it on your skin, and they thought it had healing properties. In fact, the word for oil in Greek and the word for mercy are related. And so you can see a a connection there. And so the idea of anointing someone with oil is the idea that it's related to God's mercy on that person. And of course, mercy that leads to healing. And this anointing is not just coming and anointing someone with oil, like a doctor, and being done, but it's in the name of the Lord. So what's going on here? What does this mean? Well, James continues, The prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise them up, and anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. This is very interesting. So oftentimes when we think about healing in Scripture, we think of physical healing. People born blind can now physically see. People who are born deaf can now physically hear. People who are lame can now walk. And so when we hear about this anointing in the name of the Lord— and they will be healed. We think of physical healing. But it seems like James has something else in mind here, because he goes on to say, the Lord will raise them up. In other words, this healing is not necessarily physical healing in this life. It's the healing that comes at the end of time in the resurrection. It's the healing from death that James seems to be talking about. And that is connected to the forgiveness of sins that you are released from bondage. And so we can't automatically assume that unction or anointing or these prayers of healing is to lead to actual healing in this life, but rather it's connected to the recreation or the new heavens and the new earth and the resurrection at the end of time where the sins are released and we are fully healed at that time. This is often why especially in the Catholic tradition, unction is reserved for those who are laying on their deathbeds, because the healing that seems to be promised in those services is healing after death, rather than healing before death. And I think this is a key moment. And I think this is probably why, uh, especially in the Western Catholic tradition, unction is reserved for those on their deathbed. In the Orthodox tradition, unction is not just done when you're on your deathbed, but because but can be done for any sickness. And in fact, in the Greek tradition, this is not true in the Russian tradition, but in the Greek tradition, unction is done usually on Wednesday afternoons during Holy Week. And obviously, anyone can come, any Orthodox Christian can come and receive that unction. And of course, if it's given to any Orthodox Christian, we know that it's not reserved for people on their deathbed. But here's the most interesting thing about this prayer service. 
At the very end of the service, the priest holds up the gospel over the congregation. If it's being done for an individual, he would put the gospel in his hand on their head. But when you're doing a service in the middle of a church for an entire congregation, you hold up the gospels, and then this prayer is read over the congregation. It says, Holy King, compassionate and most merciful Lord Jesus Christ, Son and Logos of the living God, you do not will the death of the sinner, but rather that he should repent and live. It is not my sinful hand that I lay on the heads of these your servants who come to you in their sins, seeking remission of them through me. I ask rather that you extend your mighty hand, whose power is in the holy book of the Gospels, I now hold over your servants' heads, beseeching and entreating your compassionate and forgiving love. O God, our Savior, when David repented of his sins, you gave forgiveness through your prophet Nathan, and you accepted Manasseh's prayer of repentance. Will you now, in your customary love for mankind, accept your servants repenting of their transgressions, overlooking all their offenses? For you are our God, who commanded that we should forgive the offenses of others, even to seventy times seven. For as your greatness cannot be fathomed, so your mercy cannot be measured. And to you belong all glory, honor, and worship, as to your Father is from everlasting, and you all holy, good, and life-giving spirit, now and always, and forever and ever. Amen. What's interesting about that prayer that's read at the end of unction is that it is the prayer that is also said after someone makes their confession. In other words, it's the absolution prayer for confession. This means, then, that the connection between unction and repentance is very strong, very strong. And I would argue, and I think this is probably the case, the reason why the Greeks have unction in the middle of Holy Week, because it's not specifically a Holy Week service, it can be done at any time during the year, but the reason they have this service is because in the Greek tradition, they often avoid confession. While the Russians go to confession quite a bit, in the Greek tradition, they have not been as strict about getting people to confession. And I think what's happening is priests started to do unction as a way of giving absolution to congregations as a whole. In my opinion, we should take unction out of Holy Week and actually have people come to confession. Because I think there's a lot of power in coming to confession. After all, the first thing the Gospels say that Jesus taught after he was baptized is that we should repent. And making a confession is a part of that healing process. It's kind of an easy out just to go to unction, not have to actually confess anything, but have the absolution prayer read over you. I think it's much better to kind of take a personal accountability, which is a part of responsibility, for your walk in Christ. You have to walk the way, and confession is a part of doing that. And so I, I do think that it is important that Orthodox Christians get to confession regularly rather than relying on the unction service. But nonetheless, the connection that James is making between anointing and healing and repentance is very strong, and that can't be ignored. In fact, he goes on to say, and of course this supports me wanting to get rid of unction in the middle of Holy Week and instead invite people to confession, is James goes on to say in verse 16, Therefore confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another, so that you may be healed. So even confession is a part of healing. 
It's got to be. And also, we see the importance of a community. This is big in our world. I'm spiritual, but not religious. People try to box in what they believe, their religion, as a personal individual sort of matter. But here James makes it clear, when you are sick, invite the elders to come, and then you should confess your sins to one another. That James is reinforcing the community, the importance of the assembly gathered together, and we can't get rid of that. And I think this point is especially important right now, as we're experiencing COVID, we know it's been hard to get to church. And I understand that. And there are restrictions and we have to keep people safe and healthy. But as people get vaccinated, we have to make the effort to start returning to in-person worship. We have to make the effort. We can't become lazy and say, well, I've gotten used to not coming to church, or I can watch it online whenever I want to. We have to get those excuses set to the side. And we have to make the effort to be a part of a community, an assembly that studies the Word of God together. Because according to James, this is where healing happens. It's within that community. In fact, the theology of the Orthodox Church would say we can only be a person, a true person, when we are face-to-face with someone else. Because as Zizoulis once said, God knows himself as persons in relation to the members of the Trinity. And if God knows himself through that relationship, we become persons or know ourselves through relationship. There's no way around it. The importance is there. To express how important these relationships are, he says, the power of the righteous is powerful and effective. So there's an assumption here that it's group prayer. It's not your prayer, but it's the prayer of the assembly. Everyone gathered together, the prayer of the righteous, people praying for you. He says, Elijah was a human being like us, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth yielded its harvest. Now, the point isn't to highlight miracles can happen, but the point is the power of prayer of the righteous. Of course, the righteous is a assembled group. It's not just your prayer, your individual prayer, but the prayer of the group. In fact, this is what the divine liturgy is. When the priest prepares the bread and the wine before liturgy begins, he cuts out a piece of bread for the body of Christ, or that part that will become the body of Christ. Then he cuts out a piece of bread for the mother of God. Then he cuts out nine pieces to commemorate the different ranks of saints. And then he remembers the living and the dead, and he cuts out pieces of bread and puts it all on the patent. So what you have with Christ, his mother, the saints, and all of us living and departed on the patent, you have an image or an icon of the world. When the priest brings that patent in the great entrance and sets it on the altar, it is an icon of the world. It's us offering ourselves. It's us praying for the life of the world, as the liturgy says. And if every Christian believer is a part of the royal priesthood, it is us fulfilling our calling, what we're called to do, to intercede and pray for the world. And that's why we offer up this bread and set it onto the altar. So what does it mean if you are a baptized Christian, and therefore a part of the royal priesthood, and you're not coming to church on Sundays? What does it mean then 
When you're not fulfilling your calling to be interceding for the world in the assembly as the church imagines it. So the importance of the the community and confessing your sins to one another, all of this leads to our healing, as James says. And then he says, finally, my brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and is brought back by another, notice again, is community-oriented, you should know that whoever brings back a sinner from wandering will save the sinner's soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Whoever brings back a sinner from wandering. So again, the idea is that you must walk the way. And you are encouraged to invite others to also walk the way with you. And in doing so, you will save the sinner's soul from death. And this goes back to the healing that James talked about just a few verses earlier, that the healing isn't healing before death, but the healing that comes after death when we rise from the dead. And this, of course, includes the remission or forgiveness of sins. So that's the end of James. I pray that everyone has a blessed Palm Sunday and a blessed Holy Week. God bless you.